welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Speaker for this session, uh, from 315 to 415, I think. And, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, the name of this meeting is A New Basis of Living. Uh, please take a moment to silence all electronic devices. If you need to use yours during the meeting, please take it outside. We ask that you not make any personal uh, recordings of this meeting. Uh, please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. In the spirit of carrying the essay message, this meeting is being recorded. If you are not sure your share will be appropriate or on topic, please participate by listening. The recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, please speak directly into the microphone so that the Listener can follow you. Are we okay on the levels there? If you wish, uh, if you wish not to be recorded, we invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording equipment. Um, the speaker. Okay, not read. All right, I'm not, I'm not supposed to read this out loud. I'm supposed to read, obviously, but okay. Um, all right. So I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Um, my guidelines are um, that I'm going to share um, and um, on the topic of a new basis for living, and um, we'll see how it goes. Um, I, I am uh, I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. I've been sober since August the fifth of two thousand one. Um, my uh, sponsorship lineage. And the, and the speakers that have moved me most are, are people who are less rigorously prepared with a, with a plan and an outline and more speaking from the heart. And I try to do that. And, um, if I get, uh, into writing and trying to carefully formulate what I'm going to say, then I'll get scared and I'll hide behind that format. And, and if I put that down and just look you in the eye, and and do my best to speak from my heart, and then I, I can be more uh, deeply honest and, and get my head out of the way and let God uh, work through me. Um, the topic, a new basis for living, is one, uh, whether God did this or whether that somebody knows, knows what I like <laughs> put me in that topic, um, I do not know. But um, there's a passage on page 68 of the big book, that I'd like to start out with. Um, and it says, Perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis 
the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. Now, for me, personally, this is a very important paragraph, and and the paragraph following it also, these two uh, paragraphs on this page, 68, are are one that I, I remember, page 68, and as... Uh, A couple of guys in here know uh, that that, that I have often just used that page as an answer to some complex problem that they were calling me about. Um, When I'm taking a man through the steps, this is actually in the fourth step uh, instructions uh, on fear. Um, But when we read this... um, when it says, for we are now on a different basis, my sponsor, the, one, the man, not my current sponsor, but the man who took me through the steps out of the big book, he would have me read the book, and then he would interrupt and ask questions, show me stuff, tell me stuff, whatever. I've got notes that I took during those sessions, and, and that's how I do it with the men that I sponsor. And so when we read, when, 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 when the man reads, for now we're on a different basis, I interrupt and I ask, different than what? And um, maybe, maybe they know the answer I'm looking for and maybe they don't. But in any event, we go back to page 60, which is in uh, the beginning of the third step instructions. Um, At the bottom of the page, um, it says the first requirement, and this is for step three. They're talking about the the directions for, for taking step three. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. And so the word basis is very important to me um, in in terms of understanding the program of recovery um, that's outlined in our literature. Now, I use the big book a lot. I know that people in some parts of the country or the world tend to use the white book more. Or, or some, I've heard of places where they don't use the the, 12, the AA literature at all. Um, my current sponsor, Bill S., um, is here this this uh, weekend, and he is also, like myself, very um, uh, centered in the big book. And he, he, he uh, emphasized this for me, and I always like to point it out, on page 77 of the White Book, um, how it works, the practical reality. It says, this title is adapted from Chapter 5 of Alcoholics Anonymous, entitled, how it works. The books Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the 12 and 12, constitute the basic texts of the original 12-step program. This section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition. This session in the White Book is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition. Uh, of the steps our aim here is to get, try to get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so they can readily be put into action. The essay program is a program of action. 
Um, and this and other places in the White Book, and as well as the history of our fellowship, which you can read about in the, be- the, the beginnings pamphlet or the beginnings booklet, um, tells how uh, our founder, Roy, uh, in, you know, read an article in a Time magazine in 1974. He's living in, in the L.A. area, and he realized that he had something like alcoholism except for sex. And he found people in the local AA fellowship that were willing to help him learn to work the AA program uh, uh, and apply it to his lust addiction. And so that's the basis for the foundation of our fellowship, is applying the solution that's in the AA literature to our problem. So I... um, uh, I believe, and, and it is what has worked for me, is that the steps, the instructions for working the steps of SA are found in the literature of AA. And the SA literature tells me how to apply them to lust and how, how to get lust sobriety and lust recovery using that, that, that uh, literature. So just as a, um, that's my, um, Thinking, if your sponsor does something different and it's working for him and it's working for you, he's right and I'm wrong. But this is my experience. This is what I have, and, and um, uh, it certainly works for me and for uh, many of the men that I've sponsored. Um, so back to the text. It says on the basis of self-will. We're always having problems. And um, what this basis, this foundation for living is about for me is the way that I make decisions. It's the process by which I decide what I'm going to do next. And um, the, the decision in the third step is a decision to change the way I make decisions. It's a decision to change my basis. So I call, I'm always, I'm often referring to the old basis and the new basis. And the old basis is the basis of self-will, and the new basis is this basis described on page 68, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. Now, practically, what does that mean? Now, um, there's another uh, story in the big book that, uh, a couple of stories that are very helpful for that. Um, one is, uh, both of them are in chapter three on more about alcoholism. One is the story of Jim, and one of them is the story of Fred. Um, so, um, again, like alcoholism, I have a sexaholism, I have a condition which the doctor's opinion describes on page XX. V-I-I-I, 28, Roman numeral 28. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And now we're talking about the alcoholic. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent. 
unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So this is the disease cycle which um, starts with me at the top, restless, irritable, and discontent. This is my baseline state. Um, in our literature, the problem refers to inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. And I think that's the equivalent of restless, irritable, and discontent for the sexaholic. It, it certainly is for me. But what this is telling me is that my problem... The alcoholic's problem is not alcohol. It's sobriety. I can't stand being sober. The alcoholic is restless, irritable, and discontent. That condition is caused by sobriety. Life on life's terms. Life without a drug. I don't know how to live. If I am alive and I don't have a drug and I don't have a treatment for my condition, if I have untreated sexaholism, then I am inadequate unworthy, alone, and afraid. That is where I am. And I will not escape that feeling until I go into the cycle. So that restless, irritable, and discontent causes me to, to seek relief, as I've found it in the past, in, in the drug, the alcohol, the lust, whatever, whatever it is. And if that were my only problem, it wouldn't be quite so grave. But I have, and I have. Once I start drinking, or, or once I stop lusting, I cannot stop. And it, it talks here in the doctor's opinion about the phenomenon of craving develops. When the doctor talks about craving, he's not. Having, talking about the feeling of wanting to take a drink, the first drink. He's talking about the feeling that develops after I take the first drink. Now, if I have a normal appetite, or a no, like a normal thirst, I have a thirst for water, I drink, thir the, it wants, the, the, the appetite causes me to reach for water, to drink. I drink the water, the appetite decreases. That's a normal, natural appetite. This is a diseased appetite called an allergy in the doctor's opinion. It's like what Harvey has said before I heard him say it last night, for those of you who were here for the thing last night. If you drink salt water, it takes water out of your body. Uh, with The salt pulls water out of your body makes you more thirsty. If, if an alcoholic wants a drink and he, and he takes it, he gets thirstier, not, not less thirsty. He needs... Two drinks, now that he's had one drink. And, and that's the way it is with my lust. So I can't stop once I start. Once I start, I create this spiraling binge. And if I don't start, then I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And so this cycle develops. I'm restless, irritable, discontent. I finally, you know, 
succumb to the insane thought and I take the first drink. It starts a spree. Then the spree takes me somewhere where I am filled with shame, remorse, and guilt and consequences, <laughs> fear, lot, lots, of, lots of things. And that's when I say, I'm never going to drink again. And that causes a period of abstinence which puts me back in the state that I can't stand. And I'm doomed to repeat this over and over unless I can experience an entire psychic change, as it says. That psychic change right there is where I can have a choice. If I'm restless, irritable, and discontent and don't have another solution, lust is my solution. That's the solution I reach for. keeps me in this cycle of destructiveness. And that's life on the old basis. Self, the way of... Thinking uh, uh, how how what I'm going to do on the basis of what do I need? Well, how am I going to keep what I've got? How am I going to get what I need? What you know? What what's going to happen if they do this? What's going to happen if they do that? I've got to think. I've got to. Does that make sense to me? It's called self-reliance. And it says it on that page 68. This is the thing. The thing that I'm doing because I'm afraid is the thing that actually makes me afraid. And that's a cycle that keeps, that's a, a cycle, a spiritual cycle that keeps me in this cycle of addiction with my mind and my body. If I can change my basis for living, at, then when I get restless, irritable, and discontent, I have, I have a choice. I can do something that, that solves my problem that doesn't take me into the cycle. Notice that I didn't say I can solve my problem. And if you go to page 44, uh, sorry, 45, where it talks about lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem doesn't say you will find the power and then you will solve the problem. It says you will find the power and the power, with a capital P, will solve the problem. So the reason my solutions aren't working is because I am the problem. And when the problem tries to, be, tries to fix itself, then you, you just get more problem. So... It, the solution can't come out of the problem. And the way I change my basis for living is to follow the directions in this book. It's to work the steps with a sponsor who's worked the steps with the sponsor. Now, I mentioned the stories in um, Chapter 3. So I'm going to look at those. My uh, A very important piece of this for me is found on page 36 where um, uh, uh, Jim um, uh, is uh, describing his relapse. And Jim is a fellow who uh, owned an automobile agency, but then he lost it to his drinking, and now he's working as a salesman. Somebody else owns it. And he's gotten sober. He's made a beginning in the program. And, and then it says, all went well for a time but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. That's, that's what happens on the new basis. I, I enlarged my spiritual life, but that's not where he was. 
To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in succession. Each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition, and he knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. So he has all these reasons to stop, um, yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at the table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed that I wasn't being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum. And and it goes on to say, he had a lot of knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, but those reasons for not drinking were pushed aside in favor of this insane idea. Now, how did that happen? Now, the doctor's opinion tells me um, that when... I get into restless, irritable discontent for long enough, my brain will go into something that's described in different ways, but one of the ways it's described is a strange mental blank spot. Now, this is, I think, biologically what is meant by powerlessness. Um, I am a physician by training. I lost my privilege of practicing medicine when I was convicted of statutory rape at the beginning of my recovery as a registered sex offender for over 10 years. Uh, When a drowning victim is examined at autopsy, water is always found in their lungs. Now, virtually everyone knows that it is futile to inhale underwater. But every drowning victim eventually does it. Why? Well, there are respiratory centers in the brainstem that control our breathing, especially when we're not thinking about it. We can override it and hold our breath. Not all animals can do that, by the way, but we can. We can under normal conditions. If the oxygen level in our blood gets low enough, that's what's driving the respiratory centers directly. And if it gets low enough, then the the drive in our respiratory centers to inhale and take a breath will override anything 
that our higher brain knows. And this is the strange mental blank spot. If I get restless, irritable, and discontent, this has been seen on brain imaging studies, and it's a difference between an addict's brain and a non-addict's brain. There are people who abuse cocaine. Not all of them are addicts. And they found this difference on the brain scans, that the ones who are not addicts, they showed them slides of triggering scenes, you know, uh, crack vials or needles or seedy street corners where a guy looks like he's selling crack on the corner and so forth, and they watched their brain react. And this would give them euphoric recall. And when that happened, there would be a, a, a part of the brain stem that's associated with dopamine, and it would light up on the brain scan. And that happened in, in both groups uh, of, of, uh, of the experimental subjects. But in the ones that were addicts, something else happened, and that is the front part of their brain went dark. So a normal person has the, the desire, but he doesn't lose the part of his brain that knows better. And so there are people who have abused cocaine, have horrible consequences. They can just decide that they're going to stop, and it's, then, then they stop. This doesn't happen with addicts because of this biological sense of powerlessness. So what happens here on page 36, in my understanding, is that Jim is living life on the old basis, and he get, he's still in this cycle, and he gets restless, irritable, and discontent enough that he has this insane thought, and it pushes out this idea that I was not being any too you know that I was not being any too smart. That's the part of him that knows better, but it's he vaguely senses that because the front part of his brain has gone dark, and that part of him that wants relief from restless, irritable, and discontent is calling the shots. Now. Um, Later in the same chapter, there's the story of Fred. And this also illustrates the same point, but it ties it back to this change of basis that we're talking about in, in the program. Um, on the bottom of page uh, 39, um, it's talking about Fred. And Fred, at this point, <laughs> at the beginning of the story, doesn't believe he's an alcoholic. He, he wakes, he's in a hospital, and the doctor tells him, maybe you should talk to these guys. Um, and they talk to him, and he listens for a while, and he says, yeah, I, I've got some things in common with you, but I don't think, you know, I'm like you. I'm going to do this on my own. And it says at the bottom of page 39, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. And, and as it turns out, Fred, Fred's an alcoholic, just as, as I'm a sexaholic. And my decision to not drink is ineffective because eventually I'm going to get so restless, irritable, and discontent that my decision is not going to have any effect on what I do. Just as you, if you decide to, to hold your breath underwater, if it goes on long enough, your decision to hold your breath is not going to, to have any, any, any effect on your action. And, and, um, 
And it's the same thing with us. If we're living sober, it's like we're under we're holding our head is being held under water, and we're saying, "Oh, I'm not going to 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 to, to take a drink." It's not going to happen, um, you know. And, and it describes Fred some more in the intervening pages. You know, self knowledge would fix it, um, and then and then he he ended up drunk again, and and he's telling the story, and he said. I rather appreciated your ideas, meaning the, the, the AA members that are talking to him. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. That's the mental blank spot, the darkening of the frontal lobe. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. And, and so he said, he just had to exercise his willpower. Um, and, and for a while it worked. And 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 he was having a great day, and then one day he he walked in uh, in into the dining room at a hotel and said, "Oh, it'd be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner." That was his insane thought, and whoosh, off to the races he went, and ended up back in 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 a, in a hopeless place. I saw, and and then and then he says, "You know." You know, I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they had prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from the moment, from that moment, that I had an alcoholic mind, I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. So uh, then he talks to the members of AA again, and uh, they grinned, which I didn't like so much, <laughs> and um, and then gave some more evidence that snapped, snuffed out his last hope. They outlined the spiritual answer and program of action which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant that I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. So remember that on page 39 he made a decision, which I said was an ineffective decision. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. Now he's making what proved to be an effective decision to go through with the process outlined in this book. That decision that he makes here, the decision to go through the process, is the third step decision. The third step decision is not where I turn my life and my will over to God. It's where I decide to do it. I talked to Mark from San Antonio last uh, September, maybe, August, I can't remember. 
And he invited me to come to San Antonio to be part of the program here. And I decided to accept the invitation. I decided to come to San Antonio. I wasn't in San Antonio after making that decision. I had to carry out a number of actions to get from uh, there to here, not the least of which was to stay sober in the meantime. So there's a decision, and then there's carrying out that decision. The third step decision is a decision to work steps 4 through 12. And 4 through 12 is where I carry out that decision. That's where I turn my will and my life over to God. That's where I change my basis for living. So that's what the new basis for living means for me. Now, there's several places in chapter 5 where the word based, basic, and basically occur. And I take each of them as being a special reference back to the idea of basis. This is my foundation. There's a story about building your house on rock and building your house on sand. And the way that story goes, if I hear what God wants me to do and do it, it's like building my house on rock. And there's still a storm that comes but my house is still standing when the, the, when, when the, the storm passes. Now, if I hear what God wants me to do and don't do it, that's like building my house on sand. The same a storm, maybe it's the same storm, maybe it's a different storm, I don't know, but a, there's still a storm going to come. And, and sooner or later, there's going to be a storm that leaves my house in shambles because the foundations aren't solid. Now, um, a little thing for the twelve, uh, from the twelve and twelve, to hook this up, um, and this is a, a favorite uh, saying of mine, a uh, reading of mine in step eleven. There is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can be can bring much relief and benefit. But when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. That's the new basis. And it's I can I can at any time choose to do the next right thing. That is the new basis, doing the next right thing. There's always a next right thing. There's always a next wrong thing. I just got a text while we were talking here. I have a sponsee who just touched down at the airport. He was held up uh, with uh, ICE in Memphis, and he, but he's in San Antonio now. Just moments ago, I saw the, the text. On New Year's Eve, he lost eight and a half years of sobriety. I'm glad he's here this weekend. He's doing the next right thing today. And it, as long as I'm alive today, I can do the next right thing today. I can carry out the decision I made in my third step today. 
I can't get done carrying that out until I'm done living. So many people say, you know, I've heard people say, how long did it take you to work the steps? Now, don't get me wrong. I do think it's a very good thing to be to, to work to be very steady and consistent in working the steps out of the big book with the sponsor. But steps 10 and 11, 12 talking about continuing. They talking about constantly and always in all my affairs. I cannot get done practicing these principles in all my affairs until I have encountered all my affairs. If I decide to turn my salary over to you, you know, for some reason, maybe I owe you a lot of money, so I'm making, you know, $250 a week. That's about what I was making when I was living in the halfway house in 2003, not even. But so I'm going to turn my salary over to you. I can only give it to you as I get it. I, I get a week's salary, I give you that salary that week. The next week i got to give you that week's salary. I can't give you all the salary that I'm going to make before I get it. I can't turn my life over any more than one day at a time. So carrying out a third step decision is something I have to do one day at a time. When I live this way, it works way better. There are still going to be hard days. Um, talks in Bill's story um, at the bottom of page 14. My friend emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how, how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. There's going to be trials and low spots ahead. There's going to be a storm that comes. And on that day, my foundations are really going to be important. What's my foundation for living? Which basis am I on on that day, that day of difficulty? But the new basis for me has changed my definition of a good day. You know, early in recovery... You could ask me how I was doing, I'd say, fine, fine, I'm fine. And it was a lie, because I had my head up my hindquarters. I wasn't looking at reality. I was numbing, I was pushing reality away and trying to cope <laughs> desperately. Things weren't going well at all. I was living in a halfway house. I had been in treatment for three months. During that time, they had told me to stop practicing medicine for the time being. I did not know, but I wasn't going to ever practice again. I was going to get convicted of statutory rape. I was going to... Uh, I, I was placed on probation. Uh, fortunately, I did not do jail time, uh, but I could not leave the county. I, I experienced a divorce. I lost a home. Uh, I lost uh, the. I, I declared bankruptcy and discharged my personal debt, but I had student loan debt which couldn't be discharged. 
in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and no way to, 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 to I was having, struggling to make enough money to live month to month and pay my rent at the halfway house. Um, I had therapy, uh, uh, psychiatry, my health insurance expired. This was not a good time for me. I was not getting my way. When I say it was not a good time for me, I'm talking about good as I defined it on the old basis. On the old basis, when self, self-will is the basis, a good day is a day when I get my way and I feel the way I want to feel. If I feel good, it's a good day. If I feel bad, it's a bad day. On that definition, some of my best days were days when I was acting out all day long. Now, when I changed my basis for living, it didn't happen overnight, but I began to experience this reality. A good day is not a day where I get my way and feel good all day long. It's a day when I use the time given to me the way God would have me do it, when I spend it well, when I focus my attention not on what's going to happen to me, but on who God would have me be. How can I be of service? What do I need to do to to, to make sure I stay sober today? When I live this way, that is a good day. It doesn't matter if it's the day when the storm comes. If I am living the way God would have me live, that's a good day. I'm not saying I, I like to have storms come. I'm not saying I like to feel pain and fear and shame. And I have felt a lot of it, maybe more in my recovery than I've ever felt in my disease. I I built it up in my disease, but I was numbing it out all the time. You know, recovery is is where I, I got to feel the pain and the shame and the guilt that I had created. And I got to let go by walking through of my pain and shame, and then other people's shame and and guilt and things that had been heaped on me by various sources in my life, I got to let go of that too. So the new basis for living for me is the path to being free of who I'm not. In my disease, I sexually abused children. I am alive today. Because several men have told me in different words at different times exactly what I needed to hear, and this is the truth. That is not who I am. If that was who I am, I wouldn't have been dying inside from living that way. I was dying inside living that way because that is who I am not. And when I... Go have gone through the process that's outlined in this book. I learned to let go of who I am not and become who I was created to be. And that's what the new basis for living is for me. That's what it does for me. It puts me in a place where I find a power, and the power solves all my living problems. So if I'm in the solution, there aren't any problems other than the question of how should my attention be directed in this moment, in this situation, to be who God wants me to be? And it goes back, and I'll close with this on the page we started with on page 68. 
the last sentence in that paragraph, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? My, my, my uh, old sponsor who taught me uh, th- this book the, the first time I went through it says that the word think there, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us do. That's my best shot. That's my best ability to, to find out what he would have me do. I don't know what it is, but I, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to try. Back on 36, when Jim hears that voice that's vaguely, you know, sensing he's not being too smart, that's God's voice. That's what God would have him do. Don't drink. Don't do this. Don't put whiskey in the milk. He has been walking away from God, following life on his own terms, listening to himself, living life on the old basis. It takes him away from God's voice. It takes him closer to the insane thought. When I change my basis for living, it turns it around. I do what I think God would have me do. Each time I do that, I get a little closer to Him and a little better at hearing. His voice gets a little louder. I get a little better at hearing. I get better and better at finding actually what He wants me to do in living that way. And when I do this and humbly rely on Him, He enables me to match calamity with serenity. That's the storm, calamity. And serenity is the feeling that I have, even in the scariness and everything, I know how I've been living the last so so many days, months, whatever, years. I know His promise to me. I've watched it unfold in your lives and mine. And even underneath all the fear, I've got this trust in Him that it's going to be okay. That's the serenity in the day of calamity. So... There's going to be some calamity. I'm going to die someday. I'm going to lose everything I've got. There was a a man who um, was a professional parachuter, and at the end of his life, he'd been on thousands of jumps. He was an artiste in the sky. Um, and on the day, you know, towards the end of his life, he was teaching people, and he was had a lot of students in the plane, and he broke one of his safety rules. And the plane hit turbulence and it bounced him out the window without his chute on. And they watched him fall. And on the way to his death, the final moments of his life, he put on his last show. He tumbled and did aerial somersaults all the way down. On the day I was born, I was thrown out of a parachute thrown out of a plane without a parachute. I've got two choices. I can spend the rest of my life in terror of what it's going to feel like when I hit the ground. Or I can spend the rest of my life doing the thing that I love the most. And what I love the most is Watching God use my experience to bring hope to other people. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. And I'm going to hush now. Thanks.
We've got about 15 minutes left. There's a microphone up here. Um, I'd like to ask um, first, uh, this is on the basis of the way the sharing meetings work, is there anyone who's got over five years of sobriety that would like to share for, for a couple of minutes? Would you, can you come up to the microphone? Or Hey, Mike. I'm moving a little bit slow. I got Parkinson's, so bear with me. One of the things that I'm grateful for is lust. Why am I grateful for lust? Because every time I have a lust attack, I say, God, it's Mike. What do you want, Mike? I got a lust attack. Okay, Mike, what are you going to do? <sighs> God, I'm going to turn it over to you and just let it go. It might be sexual lust. It might be lust for resentment. It might be lust for anger. Maybe lust for fantasy. Maybe lust for looking at somebody. Whatever the lust attack is, it brings me closer to God because God says, Hey, Mike, I can handle it. And I say, Okay, God, you got it. God says, All right, Mikey, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to pray about it. What are you going to pray about it? God, I'm powerless over resentment. I'm powerless over anger. I'm powerless over fear. I'm powerless over fantasy. I'm powerless over looking at somebody. I'm powerless over everything. But God, I can just let it go. So what I do then is I just let it go. And then God says, what are you going to do about it? Hmm. You mean I got to do something, God? And God says, yep. What are you going to do? One of the things I have is a smartphone. On the smartphone, I have an app on it called Kindle. I have the big book. I have the 12 and 12. I have two books that essay allows me to have on there. There's a white book on there. I had a little problem with pirating a white book off the internet and putting it on there because it's just, you know, it's, me, I feel it's stealing. So I don't do that. I carry a white book. I carry the physical white book around with me. So what I do is I read the daily reflections of AA. I read the recovery stories. I read the 12 and 12. I read the big book. And since it's the first month, I follow the steps of action that a book puts out. It's just a reading list. What else do I do? I sponsor people. I call people. I call my sponsor. I read. I offer to help people. I take phone calls. I work the program recovery. That's how I stay sober for today. One time I was traveling through Nashville, Tennessee, and I stopped Nashville. My wife and I stopped to see the Grand Ole Opry. Thursday, Tuesday morning, 6.30 in the morning, there's an SA meeting. I had to get up at SA morning, and Harvey was there. At 6.30 in the morning in Nashville. 
his old beat up Cadillac. Well, I think it was Cadillac or Lincoln. Well, anyway, it's a big car. He comes driving up. I recognize him, so I recognize the building to go into. So I went in there. After me, he had 27 years of sobriety at the time. I said, how did he get 27 years of sobriety? And I walked right in that trap. One <laughs> day at a time. <sighs> so that's what I do this program is one day at a time. That's how I worked it. And every day I get a lust attack. I get a lust attack for Mike. You think you know better. Mike, you're angry. Mike, you're resentful. Maybe just a little bit of lust won't hurt. Come on, God, just a little bit of lust. Just a, come on, just, just let me lust just a little bit. And God says, all right, go ahead. See what happens. Damn it. So that's what lust for me is. Lust is a daily reprieve for me to get in contact with God. Mike and Rebecca I think I pushed the wrong button on my phone. Sorry. The phone outsmarts me. It's called a smartphone for one reason, because it outsmarts me. I'm Mike, I'm a recovered sexaholic. It's Friday, June 5th, 2012, one day at a time. Thanks, Mike. Anybody else with over five years want to share? Anybody else with over one year? Anybody else, period? Well, thank you for coming. We're a little bit early. We're about seven minutes early. But if you like, we got time we can circle up and close with a prayer. We have some prayers listed in the program. Would somebody choose one? Okay, somebody chose. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.